There we go. Okay, so we're going to be looking at Bethlehem today, and I'm very pleased to have my slides in order. So I think I am um, going to sound a good bit more coherent this week, <laughs> so don't be nervous. Um, but first of all, <laughs> someone came in and said, should I be nervous? <laughs> Not today. I've got them in order today. So uh, we visited Bethlehem on our trip in April with the church group, and I've been repeating that. As far as I know, Otter Creek is going to repeat trips to Israel, Palestine, about every two years, hopefully. And I encourage you to consider uh, trying to make that trip happen for you, and I encourage you to uh, think seriously about that and maybe set up a savings account. Um, it's an expensive trip, but it is the trip of a lifetime and one I'll forever be grateful that I was on. Um, but we visited Bethlehem and we all know Bethlehem, of course, as the site where Jesus was born, uh, the city where Jesus was born. Um, but a lot of you know that Bethlehem is also well known as a couple of other people's hometowns. So who, who knows who's, who else can claim Bethlehem as their hometown in the Bible? King David was from Bethlehem. So Samuel went to, God sent Samuel, the prophet Samuel, to Bethlehem to anoint David after Saul had fallen out of favor with God. Um, it's also the hometown of another, it's the starting place of another Old Testament book that starts with an R. Ruth, yeah, so Naomi's husband uh, is from Bethlehem. So, but today we're going to be focused on the, the nativity, Jesus' birth and what we can learn there. This is what we're going to be doing today. Um, we're going to first look at modern day Bethlehem. It's very different now than it was 2,000 years ago. We're going to look at the Church of the Nativity, which is where my group and I spent most of our time in Bethlehem, a famous church. And then finally, we're going to look at the gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus and stay there for a bit and discuss uh, implications. So first of all, this is um, where Bethlehem is located. So you can see it right here. It is in what is known as the West Bank. So this is Israel, and this is Palestine, and this is Palestine. And Palestine is made up of Gaza and the West Bank, and Bethlehem is actually in Palestine. Um, the reason, by the way, that this is called the West Bank, I kept getting the West Bank and Gaza mixed up because the West Bank is actually on the eastern side of Israel. <laughs> and I kept wanting to call this the West Bank. This is West of the Jordan River, and that's why it's called the West Bank. But Bethlehem is down here just a little bit south of Jerusalem. It didn't take us long at all to get there. Um, some things that I want to, you to know about Bethlehem and about the West Bank that I didn't know uh, very well. I, I had always heard that um, there was conflict between Israel and Palestine. I knew that. I knew that um, the conflict is over land, um, and, and that's about, oh, and I knew that there are terrorist acts that occur, um, that, that when the Palestinians um, uh, 
are violent, that's called terrorism in the news. And when the, Isra when the Israeli military responds, I've observed that we don't necessarily call that terrorism, but they are fighting over land. Um, so I did know all of that going into it, but I learned more when I got there. I learned, um, and some of you may already have known this, that the whole West Bank, including Bethlehem, technically does belong to Palestine. And that was determined back in the 90s at a peace accord in Washington, D.C. So right here in the United States, they're called the Oslo Accords or the Oslo Accord. And this land is Palestine. So Bethlehem is in Palestine and Palestine, according to that peace accord, has the rightful claim on this land. Um, sure. Oh, Luda, what a good question <laughs> that I cannot answer. I just, because, you know, there was that war of 17, I mean, 1967. There were so many wars. <laughs> there were lots of wars, and there was this big six-day war. Yes, and Yes, so as far as I know, the land, Steve, you're going to correct me if I'm wrong. So the land, as far as I know, was Palestinian territory. And this is not where I want to hover today, by the way. <laughs> but, but the land was Palestinian territory. And my understanding is that in the Six-Day War, which I believe was in the end of near like 67, 1967, something like that, that Israel claimed that, that Israel went in to the West Bank and Jeru East Jerusalem, which are both were both Palestinian territories. And, and they didn't want to let go of it. So it was after that six-day war that you had these two uh, states, nation states, Palestine and Israel, laying claim to the same land. And so then it was in the in like the mid 90s, 93, that they met in Washington D.C. and agreed to these things. That's as far as I can answer that question. Does anyone else want to answer that further? Yes. So is that that little tiny narrow thing? Like yes. 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 So the Gaza Strip is down here. And again, my frame of reference on this is about this much. But I can tell you that they're both Palestine occupied territories, but you can't just go from the West Bank to Gaza Strip. So if you, if you live in the West Bank and, and you have family in the Gaza Strip, you probably haven't seen them in. 20 or 30 years um, because you can't freely enter and exit the Gaza Strip. And so even though they're both Palestine, they're, they are separated. But when y'all were there, did you go to both? We did not. We were only in the West Bank. Okay. And then just one more political note, there's really no uh, state called Palestine right now. It's the Palestinian people that live in these territories, they would say occupied territories by Israel. But, um, so they have that space in the West Bank and Gaza, um, and like I said, they're separated by wall defenses, but, um, but there's really no official Palestinian 
government. Well, and see, you've put your finger right on it. Okay. The teeny tiny amount that I do know does include that the United States doesn't recognize Palestine as a state, but there are like 170 some odd countries in the United Nations that acknowledge Palestine as a state. So Israel doesn't, and we don't. And so that's a big, we have a huge impact on whether Palestine is recognized as, a, as its own independent nation state. Okay, let's, let's do move on. <laughs> Okay, so modern day Bethlehem. Here's some things that I observed that we, our trip observed and learned while we were in modern day Bethlehem. And it's all, modern day Bethlehem is very impacted, as you can imagine, by the fact that it's in the West Bank and by the fact that that land is contested. So here's what modern day Israel is like. Um, it's technically under Palestinian authority but is occupied by Israel's military. I'll show you in a second what that looks like in a picture. Um, but the people who live in Bethlehem, let me just stick with my bullet points because I think I have it on here. So let me just stop that sentence mid-sentence. Israel, like we've already acknowledged, does not call it an occupation. And if you hear um, a member of Israeli leadership talk about the occupation, they'll say the so-called occupation. Uh, they, they say, nope, this land is contested. We're not occupying it militarily. This land is contested and it's our land. And Palestine's not a nation state. It's a city of 39,000, so considerably larger. Um, than when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Not a tiny place, but also not nothing like a, a Nashville. Islam is the majority uh, religion there. I'm not sure how many people are religious, but it's definitely an Islamic majority, about 20% Christian. So the woman who showed us around was born and raised there. She is full-blown Palestinian, but she's a Christian. And so she's in the minority, but 20% is a significant presence. And um, I thought this was interesting that she told us, her name was Sana, she was lovely. Um, she uh, told us that it's the law in Bethlehem that the mayor and the vice mayor have to be Christian. And I found that so interesting. And then finally, you could tell that there was a low standard of living in Bethlehem. So I'm going to show you a couple of pictures. Um, and I just have to believe it's because of that wall and because of the occupation. So let me show you some pictures so you'll see what I mean. Oh, I'm sorry. Tourism is very important to Bethlehem. So the reason we were there is what keeps that economy going. Um, visiting the Church of the Nativity. Everyone wants to see where Jesus was born. Um, and, and that's the economy in Bethlehem is dependent on that. Okay, so this was the very first thing we saw when we were pulling up to the gate uh, to drive into Bethlehem. So Lydia and Roger may recognize this, and Steve and Ginger, and there may be more in here from the trip. Oh, and Rick and Robbie. So do you, and Lee. <laughs> Lee took this picture. Do you recognize anyone in this picture? Do you all see Donald Trump right here? 
This was actually one of the smaller uh, airbrush paintings we saw of Donald Trump. Um, painted on the outside of the wall that surrounds Bethlehem, or really the West Bank. This is called, um, what we're driving through is called Checkpoint 300. Um, but the, there's a separation wall and you have to drive through it to get in and out of Bethlehem, whether you are a Bethlehem resident and you work in Jerusalem, which would be how half of us make our living is driving into Nashville every day from one of the surrounding areas. We can't afford to live in Nashville, but we need to get to Nashville every day to work. Um, so they're driving out and then people like us on these big tour buses are coming in to see the birthplace of Jesus and we all go through this checkpoint. One thing I want you to know, or I, I guess I've already, I think I'm gonna say it here. One thing I want you to know about this checkpoint, so this is, at, we are parked and we are waiting for a guard and he's looking at our, I think Ronnie took up our little passport things, I can't remember, what he was showing the guard so that we could get through. Do you remember, Rick? I don't remember, but I was gonna say there was another bit of graffiti on the wall. Uh, it, it was written and, and it said, you're in prison if there is a McDonald's on the other side of the wall. Yeah, 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 the graffiti was um, telling. It was telling and it was, it was pretty clear. <laughs> the intended message was pretty clear. Dixie? Is this on the Palestinian side of the wall? This is, no, this is on the Israeli side. Is Israeli. Mm -hmm. So this is what you see when you're looking at the wall from, out, from Israel. Okay, so we were in a bus waiting to be cleared and we all thought, you know, all of us white Christian Americans, we all thought, how long is this going to take? We've heard horror stories about how long you can get stuck at a checkpoint. Well, not so if you're a busload of Christians from the United States. You're going to get through pretty quickly. We got through in under five minutes, best I recall. But if you work in Bethlehem, I'm sorry, if you live in Bethlehem and you work in Jerusalem and you're coming and going from this very same checkpoint, it takes on average an hour. And so they, the folks who do that are building into their commute, not just the travel time, but the time it takes to get through a checkpoint and they're doing it every day. On so both sides, an hour going to come Thank you. Sorry. Is it both sides that it would take an hour? I just know it takes an hour on. You have to wait in line. I don't know which is longer. I just know an hour average. It, when I read that statistic, it was in the morning. So Palestinians who work in Jerusalem have to get up at these ungodly hours to get in line for the checkpoint so they can make it to work on time. So maybe it's not that difficult to come back in, but it's difficult to get out. Okay, so here's a picture of just the street in Bethlehem, and I don't know if you can tell, we, we had been in beautiful, beautiful places for like a week and a half, just these um, scenic places where you would want to spend your honeymoon or you would want to go for a luxury vacation. Just gorgeous places with gorgeous architecture and beautiful landscaping and on the Mediterranean just 
you know, like Malibu, California type landscapes. But in Bethlehem, there was a stark contrast. Um, this is what Bethlehem looked like. And so I don't know if you can see the detail, but there, 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 the buildings are not maintained well. There's graffiti and paint on the buildings. There are old flyers that have been hanging for a long time. There's trash in the streets. It's much more crowded. The people weren't as well dressed. Um, Israelis are very nicely dressed and they live in a beautiful place. And when we crossed over into Bethlehem, you were aware we are not in Israel anymore. Okay, so that's all I have to say about the fact that I just want it to stick in your brains that Bethlehem is part of Palestine. Um, this is the outside of the Church of the Nativity. And the things that I want to tell you about this are that this church was originally built by Emperor Constantine in 3 or 400 AD, something like that, the 300s. And this is so interesting to me. Constantine was the first Roman emperor converted to Christianity, and guess who introduced him to Christianity? Who? His mother. Oh, his mother, Helena, who was a Greek. She was not a woman of power and prestige. She was probably a concubine to Con Constantine's father, but she went on a tour, like we did, of Israel. And she came back and told her son the things she had seen and she introduced him to Christianity because she was inspired by the tour she took of the Holy Land. And so Constantine began erecting churches uh, to commemorate the different holy sites and this is one that he erected. Now the Samaritans came in and burned it down years later not not too long after and so this is this is not what constantine built anymore but he built the original church and i'm going to show you in a minute there are parts of constantine's church that remain but what you see right here was built by i think an emperor of the ottoman justinian yes an emperor of the ottoman empire he rebuilt it He what? He was a Turk. Then. Yes. The Ottomans are Turkish. Yes, that's absolutely correct. Um, one thing that's interesting to note about this church, and I'm going to show you pictures of this in just a second, three Christian groups lay claim to this church. The three groups are the Greek Orthodox Church, the Armenian Orthodox Church, and the Catholic Church, the Franciscan Order of the Catholic Church. Okay, so here we are, and I'll show you more pictures of that. Here we are entering the church. This is Janine. She was so adorable. She wore these cute hats every day. <laughs> Steve never wore a hat. Uh, this is a fun guy named Simon who was on our trip with us. But we are going in through the door of humility to the church of the nativity. And so you can see from the picture, it's a four-foot tall door so to get in it you have to both step up and bend down um, so you enter that way and it's called the door of humility because there was speculation that it caused you to bow humbly as you entered a church where Jesus 
was born. Um, but apparently that is not actually the case. The reason the door was made this way by the Turks, by the Ottoman Empire, is that people, you know, marauders who would come in trying to steal stuff would ride in on horseback or camelback to steal stuff and they, you can't ride in on horseback or camelback when there's a four foot tall door um, that, that you have to compress yourself to get through. So you certainly can't get a camel through that. But we entered through the door of humility. This is the very first thing, this is our very first visual of the Church of the Nativity. So we've just come in the door of, the, of humility and there's this big Mm, four-year thing and you look down the hall and all these lights are just hanging throughout there were lights and ornaments throughout um, and our guide um, who like I said was born and raised in Bethlehem she has an accent and I love the way she said this she said the ornaments are because it's always Christmas in Bethlehem so it took me it took me a minute to adjust um, the, the ornamentation is actually kind of gaudy, but when she said that, it, it, made it, it made it more beautiful to me. I appreciated the beauty of it more. Um, so like I said, three Christian groups lay claim to it. These, you know what, when you put picture, when you take a picture, the picture doesn't do justice to seeing something in person, but then you take the picture and you put it on an overhead, and what you had managed to capture in the picture is lost in the overhead. So you can't even appreciate how beautiful this is in this picture. It is a shame, because best I recall, this particu particular mosaic included mother of pearl, and you could, you could tell it from the ground. It just glistened. Um, it just looked precious. It just looked like precious gold and mother of pearl. It, it was just breathtaking. Um, but here's what you see here are these mosaics, which are up, on the, up high on the walls, just like it looks, have been found under the plaster. And so they've let you see here that there was, you know, six or eight or ten inches of plaster on top of these mosaics. Now, like I told you, Constantine had this church erected in like the 300s, and the Samaritans burned it down, and Justin Tinian, the, the Turk, the Ottoman Empire, had it, had it rebuilt. Well, when the Crusaders came in, when the, when the Christian Crusaders came in in about a thousand, they, my son is making fun of me for being animated. <laughs> when the Christian Crusaders came in, they recognized the precious nature of the Church of the Nativity. They sent, the Crusaders positioned a hundred knights around the Church of the Nativity to guard it and protect it. And once they were sure they had it and had it securely, they added their own artwork from their period, from their era. So this is all Christian Crusader era, you know, about 1,000. Um, and it is gorgeous. But it's been under plaster for I don't know how long, probably to protect it. Now, the reason they started fi finding all this cool artwork underneath and I need to move along if we're going to discuss anything from the Bible. <laughs> but the reason, it's just so fascinating. The reason they started finding this is that 
going back to those three churches that lay claim to this church. Um, they were quarreling over it. And let me see if I can find the year. I have it in my notes. Yes. So they were quarreling over it. And the Palestinian Authority, or at that time it was the PLO, the president of the PLO said, okay, this is a precious church to you. It's in Palestine. This is a precious church to all of you. You Armenian Orthodox, you um, Greek Orthodox, and you Catholics. You all lay claim to it. Here's what the rule will be. The status quo. Whatever you... Greek Orthodox Church has always tended to in the Church of the Nativity, that's yours. So if you hung that tapestry there, that tapestry is yours and that wall is yours, or at least that space on that wall. And if you, you Catholic Church, if you have always had a procession down that aisle, well, that aisle is yours. And you, you, whatever, whatever one I left out, Armenian or Greek, if you've always... Um, if you're the one who's always lit that candle, well, that spot's yours. So you get to keep it. We're going to maintain the status quo, stay in your lanes. But if you manage to walk down that aisle, and if you manage to use that cupboard, and if you manage to light that candle, the ownership transfers. It's whoever's taking care of it and using it. So you can imagine, it is no surprise that the church is in a state of disrepair <laughs> because no one will let any, anybody else fix anything because if they fix it, it becomes theirs. And that's actually written into the law. Isn't that fascinating? And so this church has been declared as an endangered site because it's in such a state of disrepair. But it's not that there aren't the, the funds to fix the church, it's that people can't get along well enough. They're so afraid and jealous of each other and so competitive with each other about hanging on to it that we might actually lose this church. <laughs> it's just fascinating to me. So there was evidence throughout that the columns that hold this church up are decaying. There's evidence that the roof is leaking. Um, and yet you've got 1,000-year-old art uh, being restored on the wall. So it's this crazy juxtaposition. Well, this, is, this is ultimate recycling. We saw, uh, when the Ottomans came in, they turned it into a mosque, and they saw all these pictures on the walls. And of course, what do you do when you see pictures on if you're Muslim? You tear them off because you can't have graven images. So they plastered them over them to turn it into a mosque. That's good. Thank you, Steve. And so... Uh, that, that saved them because it's the same, same in the Aga Sophia and any place else. They plastered over the Christian thing, turn it into a mosque. So 400, 500 years later, when the Christians come back through, they take the plaster off. The That's good. That's good. Okay, so moving along. This is the last thing I want to show you about the church, and then let's talk about the, the nativity in the, in the Bible. So this tile dates back to when Constantine had the church erected. So this tile is 2,000 years old, and it's under the floor. You can't tell that right here, but we're all standing on this part. 
and this is like two or three or four feet down. Fascinating stuff. More of the beautiful uh, mosaics on the wall that have been preserved. I've got to tell you about this. This is an angel that was found up way high on the walls. And, and you can see the other angels in, in one of those pictures I showed earlier that had the windows. Um, they had no idea the angels were here. And so they have found what they thought were six angels. And they were happy with that. And then they found a seventh angel. And they just went nuts. These Italian restorers went nuts. And they were so excited. And it took them a whole year to very carefully remove the plaster from the seventh angel. And we got to see the angels, and it was cool. While we were waiting in line, I'm gonna, you can see all the ornamentation and different altars that have been erected by the different church groups. But here's where we're going down. It's like going into a crypt. Um, we are all going down to see where Jesus was born. And this is, of course, where Helena, the Greek mother of Constantine, says, I think it was right here. So, again, that was 300 years after Jesus' birth. But here we are all going down. There's Josh. There's Steve. There's Brady Cole. <laughs> he provided a lot of comic relief on our trip. Okay, so here it is. This is the spot where Jesus was laid in a manger. And so they've set up an altar. It, I don't know if you can tell. Like, you can't walk in there. That looks like a fire. You're like, you look down on it, and it's like a, shaped like a fireplace. So everyone's waiting in line to get down to this, and they're... Uh, you know, we were, it, it's not for a um, person who has fear of, what's the, yeah, claustrophobia, you are not going to do well with this. So we were all like, you were body to body, head to toe with str complete strangers. As we all got down into here, it was very quiet and reverent. And then when you got down here, there weren't guards, but there were custodians who were keeping us moving. So there were people who wanted to stop and pray there. And you could tell that the custodians had to work to gently keep them moving. So there you have the Church of the Nativity. So let's talk for a minute about the different gospel accounts of the Nativity. And I don't know if you all have ever um, compared what the different gospels have to say about the birth of Jesus. But if you read the first couple of chapters of Matthew, Matthew focuses on King Herod, the star, magi from the east coming with their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and then of course the terrible, awful killing of the baby boys. I think age two and under. Mark makes no mention at all of the nativity. Luke paints his story of the nativity. It's like two different people at the same party and they observed all different things. They were both at the same party, but they observed all different things. So Luke mentions, focuses on Augustus Caesar, the census, which is why Joseph and Mary had to go back to Bethlehem in the first place, 
the angels who appeared to the shepherds. You know, in Matthew, you've got the star appearing to the magi. In Luke, you have the angels appearing to the shepherds. There's no room in the inn. You have no mention of that in Matthew. And you have Jesus put in a manger. And then what does John say? Nothing. No mention of the nativity at all. So it's Matthew and Luke. And so I want to look at just... If you've never compared the two, it's just fascinating. I, I had never compared the two. So you got Matthew and Luke both telling you about the birth of Christ. With Matthew, the angel appears to Joseph. <coughs> Have you ever noticed that in Luke, the angel appears to Mary? What is that about? In Matthew, King Herod is why everyone's moving around and all upset and all disrupted from their normal routines. And in Luke, it's Caesar Augustus. It's all true. Just different. They noted different things. And in Matthew, of course, you have the wealthy who are coming to worship Jesus. The wealthy wise men. And in Luke, you have poor shepherds, the lower class coming to worship Jesus. And in Matthew, you have the star. And in Luke, you have the angels. So if you haven't read those two uh, and compared and contrasted them, it's like reading the same, like I've already said it, same story from two completely different accounts who both noticed completely different things. So what I want to do if we have time is read the Magnificat and who can get to that quickly? It's Luke 1, 46 through 55. What do I mean when I say the Magnificat? Say it again. Mary's song. Mary's song. She's <coughs> magnifying the Lord. She's gone to see Elizabeth. Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. Mary comes into contact. Mary's pregnant with baby Jesus. They come into contact and um, Elizabeth's baby leaps in her womb. And... The, Elizabeth blesses Mary and then Mary magnifies the Lord and this is what she says Dan you look like you have it okay. uh, and Mary said my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant from now on all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the hunger. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Thank you. And so you hear in Mary's uh, glorification of God, you hear the same things Luke is trying to drive home in his account of the nativity. Um, it's the humble that God um, will raise up. It's those who are oppressed. It's those who need his mercy. Um, he's bringing down rulers and he's lifting the hum humble. He's filling the hungry with good things. Good news, shepherds. 
Good news, those of you who don't have a place to give birth to your baby and have to give birth in a barn. Good news. It's all, it's all going to be turned upside down because God loves the humble who fear him. I guess I've already answered this one. <laughs> but I want to hear from you. Tell me what other themes or maybe drill down deeper into some of the themes that are evident. Is there a gender thing too? Like, as Luke's talking, he's got a very merry gender. I've never thought, I've never noticed that before in Matthew. He went to Joseph. Yes. The angel went to Mary and Luke, and he had the magnificat. It seems obvious to me too, because in Matthew, I don't believe you have any mention of Elizabeth or of Mary visiting Elizabeth. Um, you do have mention in Luke of Zechariah, you know, who was struck mute when he apparently didn't believe the angel readily enough. Um, but you don't have, the, the women don't take as leading a role. So I, I think so. I've never noticed this before, but she says, uh, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Is that the root of the veneration of Mary? I wonder. Who here can answer that? Is that the root of why Mary is upheld so with such esteem? I think so. It seems like, Eric, speak up. Well, I, I think so. I One of our church ministers thinks so. Obviously, in the Catholic world and even yeah. the Orthodox world, they make they really uh, lift up Mary. Yeah. In our Protestant side, we I think as a reaction kind of ignore Mary. Deval, yeah. Uh, and I just kind of wonder, as we all wander through the years and hear more said about Mary and go to places where. Mary is venerated, which is almost any cathedral you walk into. Sure. Just like, where do they get that? Yeah. It's right here. And again, two different perspectives on the very same truth. It's all true. Well, you've got to realize who these books were addressed to. Matthew was written to the Jewish people. By the time Luke came along, they had already, many had already left, and women had a hugely prominent role in the early day church, much more so than in, 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 in Jerusalem. And so Luke had an audience who was more receptive to putting emphasis and, on... And as you get into the empire, you find mm -hmm. out women had a much greater role than they would have had. Yeah. Patty. So, I wonder, you know, of the two monarchs, or the two... Caesar, Caesar, Caesar and Herod. Herod. Who was higher? Caesar. And so then Caesar could have said, this this is the law. Herod also had to say, this is the law. Yes. So then it trickled down like authority does. Yes. So Though Herod added to the law because Caesar said, here's the law, take a census. Herod said, we're going to do a census and I'm so obsessed with my own self-exaltation that I need to make sure I kill this this ruler that's coming out of Bethlehem in the form of an infant. So Herod became obsessed with self-preservation, and that was not Caesar's interest, at least in this story. But Caesar could have said no to that? 
No. Caesar probably didn't know about that and may not have cared. I don't know. I think we've already done this and Steve kind of helped us it, with this conjecture about the implications of the, of the themes, the two different things that are going on. But before we break up, I do want to pray. Um, and I know we're, we're going over time, but I want to tell you real quick that when we were with this Palestinian Christian, we all asked her as Christians ourselves, what can we take back to our home congregation in Nashville, Otter Creek? What can, what can we take back as a message from you? What can we pray for for you? And she said, please pray for peace in the West Bank. Please pray for peace. That's what we want. We want peace. Please pray for peace. Um, so I want to pray for peace in honor of our Palestinian Christian brothers and sisters this morning. Um, I would like for someone else to lead this prayer. Does anyone feel led to lead this prayer? Maybe someone who is on the trip with me? I'll do it. Thank you, Steve. Most gracious Father, uh, we're reminded by these pictures and these places uh, just how powerful you are over the many centuries. Father, we pray that you would remain powerful in our lives. In fact, be the ruler of all of us. Now, Father, I pray for peace. Father, uh, not only armed peace but peace in our minds and our bodies peace in our churches and peace in our family and peace in our nation father you are the only way that true peace can come in your son's name we pray amen amen, amen. thank you